Well, Pastor Jamie, uh, I thought this Sunday I could preach on anything I want. Then um, I got a call three weeks ago from uh, Pastor Jamie saying, Daryl, I would like you, since you're president of Phoenix Seminary and you have a different perspective, he says, I'd like you to address the greatest threat, the greatest challenge to the evangelical church in America today. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jamie. I was going to have some fun this morning, you know. It took me two weeks to try to figure out what I thought that actually was. And then a week to put the message to, together. And so, you know, Jamie, thank you for giving me all the lightweight messages in this series. You get to do the fun ones. But upon reflection the last few weeks and a lot of observation, I, I, I believe I do know, in my opinion, what the greatest challenge is to the evangelical church in America today. And it was thought to be the greatest individualistic uh, 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 strength that made our country great. And it has. It is well known that it is our rugged individualism that has made this country unique among all the other countries. I mean, we, we focus on what we want. We go after it. Nothing's impossible if we set our mind to it. It's called the American dream. And there's nothing wrong with it. It has made our country great. In recent memory, such ingenuity has produced things like Amazon, Google, eBay, Starbucks, Microsoft, Apple, and a gazillion other great things, if you consider those great. But what happens when we begin to tinker with the American dream? I mean, if we forget the point of it all, you do know a dream can become a nightmare. You know that which was virtuous can become vice. We admire the roguish behavior of others. I, I am an individual. I don't need you, nor do I need your approval. I'm autonomous. I am me. Hallelujah. And you know, most people think that way. And we're really disconnected from each other because we have forgotten the point of rugged individualism. It was originally in our country to create something good for all. It was being part of something bigger than ourselves, a dream of a better life for people and for our children and grandchildren. But here's the rub. Can I have a better life without you? I mean, is life relational? Or is life isolational? Is it in connection that I enjoy the significance and purpose of my life? Or is it in isolation and disconnection from one another? Now, now there's the rub. If the real aspect of happiness and significance in life and destiny and purpose is in relationship, then I have learned that relationships can become very, very painful. Is it possible that we have tinkered with the American dream a little bit too much and rugged individualism has become rugged self-determinism? I mean, an obsession with self. Our culture has become all about becoming all that I can be. So we hear phrases like self-help, self-improvement, self-growth, self-fulfillment, self-advancement. In other words, self-self. Now James Cameron, he has said some really dumb things about Jesus Christ in the last couple years. But boy, can he make a movie. Boy, did you see, uh, uh, what did you think about the film Avatar? Now again, remember, I don't go to movies, but if I had, I would have seen this one billion dollars already. 
Now, the theology was a little strange. God is our mother earth, and it plays out in a kind of a pantheism. But I thought the connection of the blue people, the Pandoran blue people, the Navi, and their loyalty to the community, and the fact they got life together from one thing that brought them connected to each other, I found that fascinating, especially in contrast to the rugged, individualistic, self-preserving human mercenaries. Yeah, I, 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 I could be manipulated. I like the blue people. But what I'm seeing today in the American church has very little to do with loyalty to a community. We really do reflect our, our, our culture of consumerism. This consumeristic attitude is, is, does it offer me what I want for my self-advancement? You do know people are choosing churches based on this. Not whether or not the gospel is preached or there's godly people there or they can grow. It's all about, is this going to give me what I need for self-development, self-improvement, to be a better Christian? You know, we get upset at the churches. We say, well, they're consumeristic and they're market-driven. What do you expect from an evangelist? When evangelists want to reach people for Jesus Christ, if you have a consumeristic culture, you're trying to reach for Christ, of course you're going to fall in and become market-driven to try to reach those people. Listen, have you ever wondered why there's a trinity? Have you ever tried to explain the trinity to others? And you see them roll their eyes. Well, it's, it's, it's not three gods. It's, it's one God and three persons. And, and God reveals himself in three persons, but there's three, but they're not three gods. And the person begins to kind of smile, roll their eyes at you, and you're a little embarrassed. Although I find it very interesting. Remember, we said Sigmund Freud, he said God's religion. We just all made it up because we've got these needs. So we've made up gods, usually in our own image, so we can have something to worship bigger than ourselves. Of course, then my question is, why would I make up somebody I cannot understand and I cannot explain? The Trinity. And, and, and yet, if God is the author of life, and life is not isolational disconnection, but if life is relationship, and God is the author of life. Did God have life before he created anything? Of course. Because he had life within himself. Because he had relationship within himself. The Father relating to the Son. The Son to the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son. And therefore he could author life. The essence of life is relationship. Connection. We're created to be a part of something. And and a commitment to that something, we actually find our significance from that something, and that something the Bible calls church. Paul calls it the body of Christ. Listen, we are connected. And even though we tend to believe in our world, in our culture, that the key to happiness is the increase of individual choices, personal choices for my self-development and my self-advancement. But what if, what if the real essence of happiness comes from this connection and this relationship that we have with one another? But there's the rub. Because when I was young and innocent, I, I was a bit idealistic about relationships. But as I've matured over these 60 years, I find there's nothing more painful in life. There's nothing I'm more disappointed in than relationships. Sometimes it feels like rejection has been the story of my life. I've shared this before, but my, I remember my sister got a hold of some Super 8, Super 8 camera, uh, a film that my parents took of us when we were little tykes. 
And she put it on DVD, let me take a look at it, and I'm, I'm watching this family gatherings of everybody, cousins and aunts and uncles, and there's a skinny, ugly little kid, just a little gnat, running all over the place, just bugging everybody. Irritate, people are just irritated at him. I was irritated at him. And of course, him is me. <laughs> you know what happens when little irritants grow up? They go into ministry. But, I, but this rejection thing, I've always been sensitive to being rejected and rejected. Matter of fact, my mom used to say, Daryl, skidoo. And if you notice, that's my license plate on my car, skidoo. I'm used to people. I just know that, like my Holly says, I'm a lot of fun in small dosages. And then finally people kind of go, skidoo. I'll never forget when I was, my, I had been a junior high pastor for seven years. And then in 1974 into 75, I, I get my first assignment to be a senior pastor. I'm 25 years old. First Baptist San Lorenzo Valley. And I'm so excited because I hear there's a pastor's conference up in San Francisco. I got an invitation. Said to a resident, but it's to me. <laughs> and so I jumped in my car and I drove up. And uh, there's about 300 of these pastors, mature, godly pastors, pastoring churches all in Northern California. I thought, this is great. They're going to reach out to me. I'm going to have a relationship. This is going to be wonderful. So we, we all heard the first couple lectures. Then lunch. Went to the lunchroom, had these, all these round tables, and so they're all sitting with the, so I kind of sat at a vacant table by myself, knowing that someone will come over and, and you know, just kind of spend a little time with the new green young pastor. And I sat, and I sat, till finally this one dear pastor comes over, and very kindly he says, is this seat taken? And I said, no, none of them are taken. He says, thank you, and took the seat to the other table. <laughs> I'm still ticked about that. And if I ever meet him again, I will kick him in the name of Jesus. You know, relationships are painful. And so it's easy to begin to believe that I better just take care of myself. I mean, this community thing isn't such a great idea. I think that's when I became a little roguish in my behavior. I know I represent seminary and speak at different churches. And I tell you, when people don't know me, the first 15 minutes, they're just kind of evaluating me like, he's doing something wrong. We just can't figure out what it is. And I have found that I just, I tend to be a little roguish because there's this attitude sometimes. If you don't want me, fine, I don't need you. Now, I'm, am I the only one that sometimes feels this? No, I, I, don't, I think we all deal with this. The greatest challenge facing the evangelical church today in America is that we've tinkered with the American dream and we have converted, we have changed rugged individualism into rugged self-determinism. And we're disconnected from each other, or at least we believe we are, even in the community of the Son of Jesus, Jesus Christ Himself. And yet, we are connected. No, not like James Cameron's blue people, through a, a life-giving tree and we're all connected to each other with fellow juices. But we are connected to one another in what the Apostle Paul calls the body of Christ. And I want to make sure you understand that this morning. And so, if you will, open your Bibles to the, to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul just wants to remind us that maybe you're not celebrating this connection. You're really an individualistic person, autonomy, me, myself, and I. But listen... If you're going to find happiness and significance, it will be in community. It will be in the fact that we celebrate the connection with each other. Do you remember how this chapter begins here, right in the middle of the book of Ephesians? This is that concept of walking worthy. This is what Paul says in the first three verses. Ephesians chapter 4. 
Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I'm begging you. I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, what's the first step of this worthy walk? He says, with all humility and gentleness. And I know relationships can be painful. So with patience, bearing one another in love, be eager to maintain, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in a bond of rest, a bond of peace. The first step of this worthy walk, he says, is to, to protect, to preserve the unity of the Spirit. The word unity is, is the Greek word agreement. You see, the Spirit of God, when you come to Christ, causes every one of us to be in agreement, to sense an agreement that we belong to each other, that we are connected to one another. And he says here that we are to preserve this connection that we all agree that we have as Christians. And we preserve it, he says, by growing up as individuals in this unity, in this connection. And we need this connection if we're going to grow. Look at verses 11 to 14. This is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after Jesus has ascended to heaven. He says in verse 11, And he gave apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. Why? Apostles were to establish the faith. Prophets gave us the scriptures. Evangelists brought people to Christ and established churches. And the shepherds and teachers, pastors, teachers, they taught and discipled. For the reason, notice verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a maturity, a mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that, here's the purpose clause, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine like a boat out of control, by human cunning, by craftiness, by in deceitful schemes. Now he says, Jesus, when, when he ascended up to heaven, he gave gifts to this church. He gave the apostles and prophets, evangelists, and then shepherds and teachers. And the reason he gave, notice he says, was to equip the saints. You've heard me say the world's divided into saints and the ain'ts. That's it. The word saint means set apart to be used by God in some way. He says to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. This word equip is interesting. It means to mend. Like a fisherman mends his nets. It means to provide that what they need to function. As a shepherd teacher, as evangelist, we're supposed to give you what you need to be able to function in this connection you have in the body of Christ. Now how long do we do this thing? Notice he says, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So what do you mean the unity of faith? Don't we all believe the same thing? Verse 5 says, you know, one faith, one baptism, we all have the same faith. Wait a second. What we believe, yes, we probably all share the same in what we believe. How we believe, now that's a different story. I hear people say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in faith. Right. First of all, I don't believe in faith either. Faith is not something you believe in. Faith is something you believe with. And everybody does. You jump on an airplane. When's the last time you flew? You didn't even see if there was a pilot. Much less, you didn't check the maintenance records. And yet they set the back of that thing on flame. You're gone. You tell me you don't entrust yourself to something and someone. 
You go, you drink water, you don't know what's playing in the tubes. You go ahead and eat at some restaurant, you don't know what games they're playing back there behind the wall. We all trust something. And all the word faith believing means is to entrust yourself to something or to someone. And we entrust ourselves to different degrees. And some say, well, I'm trying to beef up my faith. You don't beef up your faith. Faith deepens when you have a deeper understanding on who it is you're entrusting yourself to. For example, let's say if I gave you a deal this morning. Anybody wants to give me $100,000, I'll invest it for you. And in six months, I'll guarantee three times the return. You should see the way you're looking at me. It's very insulting. <laughs> say, Daryl, I'll listen you teach the Bible, but I'm, you're not touching my money. But what if, what if you found out you Googled me and you found out that I happen to have my PhD in economics and that I've actually invested and I'm sitting on $50 million I made from my own investments in the last three months. All of a sudden, your faith in me has what? You didn't do one thing, but it has deepened. Your ability to trust me has deepened for no other reason than you know more about the one you're trusting. That's how faith deepens. That's how your ability to entrust yourself to someone when you know the one you're trusting is worthy of the trust. And that's why he says here, we've got to grow in our knowledge of the Son of God. And this word knowledge is not the normal word to learn something, the word gnosis. It puts a little preposition in front of it, epi, epinosis. It's not saying, well, you've got to learn more about Jesus. The word is experience. You learn and you experience until it's part of your life. Says we've got to learn and experience more of who Christ is, what He's done, and how we're connected to each other. And He says this whole thing, this this relationship with Him and each other, is going to grow us into. Notice He says a mature man, a tillion. A tillion is somebody who be, has become a complete person. Now, what what does a complete person look like? Well, He tells you right here: the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ like Jesus Christ. Why is he a Tillion? Why does a mature person look like him? Well, notice Paul says here, stop being like children. The word is nepios, an infant, or a boat that's being tossed here and there. What's he talking about? I think the best insight in that passage is Socrates. Socrates, through Plato, basically believed that, that it's fascinating insight, that we're made of three dimensions, three things. Our mind, our emotions, and our appetites. And then he would say that, that if we make our decisions based on reason, our mind, what we think is right or wrong, then that's where you have freedom. If we are driven and we make decisions based on our emotions, then we're enslaved to those emotions. And if we're making decisions of our life based on our appetites, then we're addicted. And you see, that's how children live. Children live addicted to their appetites, enslaved to their emotions. I'll do what I feel and I want what makes me feel good. Paul says, stop acting like children and let's grow up. And with our minds, understand who Jesus is and who we are to be and how we're to connected, be connected to each other. The point of the whole thing is that we humans bear the image of God. Remember I said before that, that God's our creator, yes, but he wants to be our father. 
He wants to be reflected. When you came to Christ, you have this desire to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 6, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, glorify God with your body. We want to glorify God. Remember what that meant? Remember in, the, in, in Exodus 33, Moses says, God, show me your glory. What was, what was Moses asking God? Show me your glory. What he was asking is, God, what is it about you you want known? And God says, what I want known is my grace, my compassion, that I'm slow to get angry, that I forgive. And remember the word hesed? They, they, I have no desire other than your well-being. God says, that's what I want known. And to glorify God is to manifest the beauty of what God wants known about himself. Well, who does that the best? Who's the visible image of the invisible God perfectly? Colossians 1:15. The Son. Who's the fullness of deity dwelling around in bodily form so the Father could be seen clearly? Colossians 2:9. The Son. Who's the exact representation of the nature of God the Father on this earth? Hebrews 1:3. You should get it by now. <laughs> the Son. That's why we are not disciples of God the Father. We're not disciples of the Holy Spirit. We're disciples of Jesus Christ, the Son. We are becoming more like the Son. That's why in John 1.12 he says, But as many as believe in the name of Jesus Christ, to them God gave the authority to become the children of God. That's why 2 Corinthians 6, God says, Yes, I'm your God, but I want to be your father, and you'll be sons and daughters to me. So who is it that from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus Christ, the son. And if Attilion, the, the, the maturity is for me to become, act like, respond like, think like Jesus Christ. That's why I follow Jesus Christ. That's why I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because the more I become like him, the more I will more perfectly reflect the beauty of my heavenly father. And maybe one day I'll hear the father say, Daryl, you're my son in whom I'm well pleased. And what pleases him? The beauty reflecting what God is like. That grace, that compassion, that slow to get angry, that forgiveness, that being concerned about the well-being of one another. And beloved, it is all seen in relationship. It cannot be seen in disconnection. But only as we celebrate the connection that we have in each other. So how do I get there? How do I grow up? Well, look at verses 15 to 16. Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined, held together by every joint with which it is equipped, mended, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. See, beloved, we're part of a network, like the blue people. But we're not connected, an avatar to some tree. A tree doesn't give us life. Jesus Christ, the head of his body, he's the one that actually gives us life. The ability to affect the lives of each other. Spirit of God gives, Christ gives me the ability to help you grow to be more like Christ. Gives you the ability to help me grow to be more like Christ. Notice he says, that we are joined and held together by every joint which is equipped, mended. You have what you need to function. And he says what holds this whole thing together, notice each part working properly. 
So each and every one of us, part of this community, part of the body of Christ, we're to be working properly. That's the stuff that binds. Me giving to you, you giving to me, but what is this stuff we're giving to each other that celebrates this connection we have to Jesus Christ and to each other? Well, Paul told you in verse 15. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we grow up. We speak truth to each other. We listen to truth to each other. We experience the truth to each other. In other words, I, I'm told that I'm to encourage and to affirm you. Does that mean I pat you on the back and say, everything's going to be okay? No, I'm to encourage you and affirm you in truth. And the truth is, there's a God who loves you. He's your heavenly Father. You're his child. He'll work all things together for your good. I'm to speak truth and remind you of the truth and encourage you with truth. If you're messing up and you're doing stupid stuff, I'm supposed to admonish, remind you. I'm supposed to rebuke. I'm supposed to speak truth to your life and tell you the truth. If I show compassion, it's not how wonderful I am. It's reminding you of the love who takes and cares for me is the same God who will love and take care of you, and he's doing it through me right now. You see, we speak to each other truth. We live truth. And the truth is, indeed, the beauty of that grace and that compassion and that slow to get angry and that uh, forgiveness and, again, that sense of well-being. See, I'll tell you what I'm concerned about. This doesn't happen from rugged self-determinism. This doesn't happen when all I'm thinking about is me, myself, and I, the Blessed Trinity. It's not about me, Daryl. I'm concerned there is a rise in our world around us, in Scottsdale, in Phoenix, in Arizona, of what they call now non-theism. They don't want to call themselves atheists, but I'm a non-theist. Richard Dawkins and others have made it actually popular. It used to be when I began ministry here at Scottsdale Bible Church that people struggled with, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. Now it's, I don't believe in God. And you want to know why? Because for most people, they haven't seen God showing up very much even in the community of his own son. And when people don't see God show up very often, they begin to believe maybe there is not a God. Because the only way they're going to see the beauty of God showing up is in the relationships we have with each other. Yeah, but those relationships hurt and I'm disappointed in pain. It's not about you. And it's not about me. It's about reflecting the beauty of our Heavenly Father. And if people are ever going to see the beauty of God's forgiveness, we better burn each other from time to time in our weaknesses. Because it is in the beauty of the relationship people see between us that they see that the beauty that there is a God. And they start seeing what God is like. It's not about me. There is a theology of why we are in kinship with each other. And it's so God can be seen. Look around you. These are your blue people. <laughs> and these are the ones that are going to help you grow. And grow to be more like Jesus Christ. And you're going to be the one that's going to help them grow. And people are going to see God is. Because they're going to see the relationships. During the hard times. The disappointing times and the good times. Now we're going to start right now. I want you to take your right hand 
I don't want you to hit the person to your right. I want you to put your right hand on the shoulder to the person on your right. Just touch their shoulder. No, don't hug. I'm not, get a room. I'm not saying, no, no, just, just touch a shoulder. All right? Now, I want you to take your left hand, put that down. Now, I want you just to touch the shoulder of the person to your left. These are your blue people. We are connected. And you know, even that touch begins a celebration that's already there. I believe the greatest challenge to the evangelical church in America today is that rugged individualism has become a rugged self-determinism. It's all about us. We're going to find true happiness. We're going to find true significance, health, and maturity, and growth as we celebrate the connection to each other and we are loyal to a community. And God shows the beauty of who he is through the way those people treat each other. And the world's watching. And the world will know God is. Does this make sense? We're going to do it two more times, so if it doesn't, come on back. (laughs) Heavenly Father, I would pray that we would indeed remember that we are part of each other. And we're all connected to Jesus Christ, the head of the body of Christ. And Lord, I, I, I know we irritate each other, we disappoint each other. But I'm not really surprised about that, Father. I mean, if powers of darkness knows that the way God's beauty will be seen will be in the relationship between those of the community of the body of Christ, no wonder powers of darkness goes after the relationships. No wonder we irritate each other so. But Father, it's not about me. It's not about us. It's about showing the beauty of who you are. May we remember the theology of our kinship. May we be loyal to one another and show the beauty of who you are. And Lord, as we now celebrate and we remember who it is that we're connected to and thus connects us to each other, our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would love us so that he would die on a cross, change us from creatures to children. May we remember. Those serving us communion, would you come forward and begin to serve us? And remember in the night that he was crucified, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and he took the wine. And he said of the bread, this is my body which is broken for you. Broken for you. Please just go right ahead and serve us. You see, how could God ever forgive us when we're not too sure we need any forgiveness? And so God would permit his own son's body to be broken, an innocent man, to be tortured, beaten, scourged, all by sinners, to show the ugliness of our pride and selfishness and indifference to God. The Jews didn't crucify Jesus. The Romans didn't crucify Jesus. Humanity, we crucified Jesus. The same pride and indifference and selfishness that 
beat was beating on his body. Beloved, that's us. So his body was broken. And then he took the cup, remember? Once someone understands their forgiveness, then one can understand what Jesus Christ did to provide it for us. When I realize that I need forgiveness, and Jesus Christ, God placed on the cross, and the Heavenly Father would pour his wrath for sin upon his own son in our place, and then adopt us as his own children. No wonder they call it the gospel. What remarkable news. Paul says we are to reflect and remember we are sinners. We still are. We're not any better than anyone else. Let's have a time of confession, even before we remember our forgiveness. Pray with me. Take the bread and look at it. Take your thumb and break it. And Jesus said, remember, this is my body broken for you. Embrace the truth about your own selfishness and arrogance and pride. How do you forgive somebody who doesn't believe they need forgiveness? 
How can you appreciate and celebrate your forgiveness if you don't embrace the truth of who you really are? We are no better than anyone else. Remember. But we're forgiven. Our sinfulness has been lifted away. Washed away, you're as clean and white as new driven snow. That's how your Father in heaven looks at you. And when he does look at you, he says, you are my beloved sons and daughters. And I am well pleased with you because I understand. Remember how much he forgives and how much he loves. Now may the God who created you and yet did not want you to remain a mere creature for he has creatures, dogs and cats and pigs and snakes. But you bear the image of God himself. He provided a way for you to become one of his sons, one of his daughters. And in such love, he asks only to, as a son and a daughter, live out the beauty of the reflection of who he is and the connections that you celebrate with one another. Church. You are the community of the Son. You are the body of Christ. Walk worthy of it. God bless you.